As you remain standing in body or in spirit, it's my uh, privilege to introduce to you our um, guest speaker for this morning, Dr. Alexander John Shia. He is a native of Birmingham, Alabama, now a resident most of the year in Santa Fe, New Mexico, but we were pleased to have him uh, as a San Antonian for the past uh, week. And uh, what I can tell you about uh, Dr. Shia is he spent uh, Tuesday uh, afternoon with the pastors, Wednesday with the staff, And then by Thursday night at the open conference, one of the things that you would have noticed is that the staff uh, came back again to hear him, and this time they brought good friends and spouses uh, because we found his his message as well as his his character to be inviting, and so I'm very pleased uh, uh, to welcome a Notre Dame fan and graduate, uh, Alexander Shia. But first, would you join me in the Shema? Follow up, we'll do it in Hebrew, follow after me, and then together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Our gospel text this morning is from the first chapter of Luke. In these days, Mary sets out and goes with haste to a Judean town in the hill country where she enters the house of Zechariah and greets Elizabeth. When Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, The child leaps in her womb, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this happening to me? that the mother of my Lord comes to me. For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believes that there will be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her by her God. And Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant, and surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy, holy, holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. And He has shown strength with His arm. He has scouted the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones. He has lifted up the lowly. 
He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. The word of our God. Uh, Good morning to you. And uh, through the wonders of modern technology, good morning to the New Heights community. And thank you to you. And thank you, David, in your name. Thank you to all the staff. This has been um, an incredible week for me. I, I leave a little tired, but greatly filled. Um, over the course of this week, I have had the opportunity to present much of the research that's been uh, my love and great gift for the last almost 20 years. And much of it is just now coming to, uh, to public view. And so this morning for you and for New Heights, I want to just summarize where we've gone this week uh, with a, a new and wider lens on these texts we call the Gospel. And I'm delighted that the Thursday night conference and the Friday day conference were uh, recorded and uh, the entire staff is well versed in this material to help you take it forward. Bishop Irenaeus in the second century, who was the very first person who wrote anything about the choice of a Gospel text, wrote this. There is but one revelation, the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. But there must be, must be four accounts. And in the last 500 years, with all of our wider understanding of word etymology and looking for for uh, recovering documents, etc., we lost the sense of what Irenaeus was saying because we obviously knew that we were searching for the true stories of Jesus. And we do have the true story of Jesus, but what could Irenaeus have meant when he said there must be four texts? What did he know that we've forgotten for a while? And where did it come from? Well, Very quickly, as first century Christians, the name that we took to ourselves was followers of the way. And it would be easy enough to say we're followers of Jesus or we're followers of love or we are people of justice, etc., etc. But the early Christians offered us something much more specific than that. They offered us a map to do it. Not just love, but here's how you love. Not just forgive, but here's the journey you make with forgiveness. Not just do justice, but here's what you have to move through to get there. And where did that map come from? It came from our Jewish mother, not surprisingly. 
and not surprisingly, the Jewish map of growth and transformation with Yahweh had four parts to it. Irenaeus, four texts, must have four texts. So, this fourness in Judaism is found in the great springtime festival that we know and that I know that you are also recovering uh, the celebration of, which we call Passover. But Passover, before the temple was destroyed, was a very simple meal. Yes, there was a lamb that was prepared, slain at the temple that morning, but the whole Passover meal was, the, was organized around the head of the household asking those at table that night four questions. And these four questions were the Jewish map for their journey with Yahweh. And so the questions were asked in this way. Beginning of the evening, we know that our ancestors were slaves in Egypt, that Yahweh raised up Moses and offered them a journey of liberation. And they had to make a choice to go or not go. Where tonight in your life are you enslaved? Where tonight in your life do you find your heart, your thinking, or your feeling locked down in some paralysis? Where tonight in your life might, in our language today, you have some manner of addiction? Talk, talk, talk around the table. Later in the evening, the head of the household asks a second question. We know that those Hebrews who went with Moses through the Red Sea and out into the wilderness, we know that they went out into the wilderness and many of them died in that wilderness. Forty years was roughly the lifespan of a Hebrew at that time. Where tonight are you in a place of death? What tonight in you is dying? What tonight in you is passing away? Perhaps it needs to pass away. Perhaps it's a tremendous grief. Now, notice that in this ancient Passover, that all four questions are asked as present tense, and all four questions are asked about something in your life right now which is happening, predicated on the journey of our ancestors. Third question, we know that the Hebrews came across the Jordan into the Promised Land. They knew the promise as the first blush of reality. Where tonight are you hearing God's new voice in your life? What freshness, what new land is there in you? And then finally, at the end of the evening, the fourth question, with the fifth cup of wine, the cup of Elijah, and the question is asked, we know that our ancestors took 200 years after having arrived in the promised land before the promised land became their lived reality as the nation state of Israel. As we leave Passover tonight, what are you, what action of God are you committing yourself to over this next year? What action of God are you committing yourself to for your family? 
for your church, your city-state, your country, the world, and for yourself. Talk, talk around the table. Now, again, there's a whole lot of information behind that. There's a whole lot of information about what I'm going to share, and I hope that you will go explore it with uh, your pastors this week. And there's even a book called Heart and Mind that is there for, for your reading. But what Irenaeus was responding to, what the first century Christians already knew, was there is a patterned journey. There is a map for the journey with God. It's not willy-nilly. You can't go out into the wilderness before you agree that you're on a journey of liberation. And you can't get to the new land without going through a wilderness. And that it all comes together in service or it's been stillborn. It was just a great idea. So early Christians already knew that map. And Irenaeus, when he lays down, there are going to be four texts that we call the gospel, knows what he's looking for. They knew that they were looking for a text of Jesus' life that wasn't about the biography but was about the spiritual practice of being a slave in Egypt and waking up and realizing I need to grow. And for that part of the journey, they chose the text we call Matthew. The entire text of Matthew is Jesus' teachings about waking up and beginning the journey again. Secondly, that having woken to the journey and the need for transformation, we go out into the place of wilderness like unto a death. And for that understanding, they chose the text of Mark. Third, we come across the Jordan into the promised land. We hear the new voice of God. We perceive the new land of God inside of ourselves. And for that text, they chose the Gospel of John. And lastly, um, we know that it all comes to fulfillment in service. And for that text, they chose the gospel that we call Luke and Acts. Now, there's history behind each of the four communities that helped the early ones know why that text was written. And this is something that we've forgotten. Any other book of the Bible, we open it up and we say, well, tell me this Tell me who this text is being written to. What's the time frame? What was going on? How does this text answer their question? Matthew's community had just experienced the loss of the temple and the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the massacre of the priesthood. And they were afraid. They were frozen and afraid to move forward. They didn't know that there was a future to move forward to. Many people were telling them, this is the end. And Matthew's text is the practice of facing change and saying that every time a darkness falls on you, you know that darkness is not the end, it is the beginning. Why does every Jewish feast begin at sundown? Because when we come to nightfall, it is not the end, it is the beginning. It is not the end. If you hear nothing else this morning, Begin to understand the reality that darkness is the beginning and it is holy and darkness is of God because that's where God 
starts his new promise in us again. Secondly, the Gospel of Mark, we know, is written to the Christian community in Rome who are being summarily killed by Nero, having been falsely accused of burning the great city down in the year of 64. The whole text of Mark is the practice of how we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Third, the text of John. John written to the community of Ephesus late in the first century. community of Ephesus is the first community like us, pan-tribal. And John has got to raise up on the, in the fractious divisions of this community that heard the song of love. But even in the face of the vision, can't do it because all the old hierarchies, all the old privileges, all the old in, who's in and who's out, all that stuff has come roaring back so much that they now feel like they're the community of the lie rather than the community of the promise. And so the text of John is written to them. What's, how do we receive joy in union and what's the meaning of it? Especially in the midst of tremendous diversity. And then lastly, we come to the text of Luke. And we come to the beautiful uh, canticle or song of Mary this morning. And here's the, the text, here's the subtext of Luke. Luke is written at the point that that terrible moment happens with our mother tradition, Judaism. And we go our separate ways with a, an enormous amount of pain on both sides. But now that we stand before the emperor as a new tradition, the emperor is not going to like us very much, and it has nothing to do with the name or the person of Jesus. It has to do with how we are choosing to live as a follower of that great sacred name. We are choosing to bring people together across the empire who think of themselves as enemies, and now we say to each other, your brother and sister. It no longer matters in my southern who your mama is. Bloodlines are of no account any longer. Emperor doesn't want that message because he prefers to have his empire fractious because it keeps his army at peace. Secondly, we're going to say to women, you have raised status. Can't really say Christianity at this point is arguing for equality, but we definitely are raising the status of women. We are telling slaves, you have souls, you're humans, you're worthy of respect. We are not yet advocating for the abolition of slavery. And we are saying, if you have resources, you have an obligation to share those with people who have less. All of that makes us an illegal, criminal, an enemy of the emperor, and he now begins to summarily execute us. And the text of Luke is one of the first most powerful, beautiful texts of how do you transform a culture and a society that doesn't understand your value system, the value system that you practice, the value system that you've come to know from God? You do it the long, slow way. Of course, we want good politicians, and of course, we want sound law. But we never fall into the delusion that that's what changes a society. You change a society by transforming and touching a heart, a heart, a heart, a heart, a heart, a heart, 
a heart, a heart. And that's what Christians did for 225 years, facing the fact that to do that work might mean their execution. But because of the text of Luke, we never gave up because we too understood Mary's canticle. And that's, this is where I want to end this morning. This is one of the most remarkable proclamations in all of the Bible. It does something quite unusual. And it is the saving grace for us. It's been the saving grace for Christians. It will be the saving grace for us in this moment when many people think we're up against it and no turnaround can happen. Luke has already told us who's emperor, Augustus Caesar, which I hope when you hear that name, you think Hitler or Idi Amin or any other oppressive authoritarian dictator who has enslaved his people to the point of, of starvation. There is no peace of Augustus. There is the brutality of an empire who has reduced everyone to despair and resignation so that they would not dare raise a finger against him. Luke tells us who's governor in Syria. Luke tells us who's the priest in the temple. And all of this is to remind people that these are horrible, brutal, despairing days where nobody would have believed that there could be a reality that could overturn this emperor and his oppression. And it is in this moment... At the beginning of this gospel, that Mary sings a proclamation that it's all already been overturned. At this point in the story, for Mary, at this point in the story, late in the first century for the early Christians, nothing has yet been overturned except the fact that each Christian has been baptized into the promise. And as the text this morning says, Mary doesn't hope about... Hope is um, a, a, a developmental virtue. Luke says we are not to be people of hope. If we have made the journey of transformation, we're reaching for knowing. Hope has anxiety in it. Mary says... She believes the promise and she proclaims that the emperor and all of the oppression is already in the past. And I'm going to suggest to you that it's that reality that can help. It helped our ancestors and it will help us go forward to do the deep work and the slow work. But to do it in such a way that we are not anxious about whether there will be a turnaround. Even ecological disaster. We are not anxious about whether there will be a turnaround. We know that if each of us does our small piece, the promise is already secure. We don't know how. We don't know when. But God has promised And will we take it up?
There's one other small little piece that I love about Luke because Luke invades this enormous task upon us. But then he brings it back home and he says things like, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Um, I think what's also in there is it means put the cross down at some point. If you're involved in a long work ahead, please don't put on a sour face. Dance, joy, sing. Uh, Fill yourself with the resources that you need for the long work. Otherwise, you're going to become resentful and embittered and people of despair. Pray with Mary. Join your hearts with Mary. Make a journey through Matthew's call for us to change, Mark's call for us to endure our lives through the wilderness, John's call for us to hear evermore a new and fresh and unexpected voice of God. And then bring that to the promise that will hold us lightly carrying our cross with some manner of joy and song. Tomorrow and the day after tomorrow are secure. For we know God's promise. Thank you.